office media networks. This is America's First News. This morning with your host, Gordon Deal. Potential of a wider war. Good morning, I'm Gordon Deal, along with Jennifer Koshenka. On this Wednesday, October 11th, glad you could be with us. Here's what we have for you this hour. The U.S. has moved a second aircraft carrier strike group into the Middle East to prevent against a growing regional conflict following the Hamas attack on Israel. How could such a low-tech assault defeat such a high-tech security program. We'll examine how Hamas exploited Israeli defenses. On Capitol Hill, Republicans Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise made their case to fellow lawmakers for being the next House Speaker. And what October in Siberia can tell us about the type of snowfall we might have in the U.S. this winter. So we're talking a lot of snow, and it, October is actually when Siberia sees its greatest expansion of snow cover. Uh, it's not in the winter because it, it starts snowing so early there that because it's such a cold region that any precipitation they get in October is usually in the form of snow. Doyle Rice at USA Today about cold and snow forecasts for the coming months. The Biden administration is faced with how to support America's closest ally in the Middle East without being dragged into another regional conflict. President Biden yesterday called Hamas's deadly attack on Israel over the weekend sheer evil. More than a thousand civilians were killed, including at least 14 Americans. They use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Hamas offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard to who pays the price. The White House says the U.S. was providing further military assistance to the country and the Pentagon is deploying a second aircraft carrier strike group near the region to deter Hezbollah and other militant groups from joining the fight. We will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. The potential of a widening regional conflict with potential American military involvement is further complicated by the taking of American hostages by Hamas. Meanwhile, the first plane carrying advanced U.S. weapons has landed at an airbase in southern Israel. Ahead of a possible ground offensive to root out Hamas, Israeli warplanes bombed Gaza repeatedly overnight. Israel says dozens of its fighter jets struck more than 200 targets in a neighborhood of Gaza City that it claims had been used by Hamas to launch its unprecedented wave of attacks. Israeli troops have killed at least 1,000 Palestinian gunmen who infiltrated from Gaza in incursions that began Saturday. Gilad Erdan is Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. There are many other players, terrorists who are looking at, at this war right now. And if Israel can't win it, uh, it will have severe, terrible ramifications all across the globe. Gaza's health ministry said at least 950 people had been killed and 5,000 injured in its coastal Mediterranean enclave following Israel's response. Reuters says a ground offensive carries risks for Israel, notably to the lives of many hostages held in the Gaza Strip which is tightly controlled by Hamas. Washington is talking with Israel and Egypt about safe passage for civilians from Gaza, now under total blockade. The deadly weekend attack by Hamas has cast a nation into mourning, forced a political reckoning, and are prompting a shocked reconsideration of one of Israel's greatest points of pride, its technical sophistication. On Saturday, Israel's vaunted $1 billion security barrier on the Gaza border failed. Here's how from Daniela Cheslow, deputy tech editor at Politico. Daniela, break it down. 
Israel considers itself a tech powerhouse. And when you look at the amount of tech that had to fail for this attack to go forward, it is a really long one. There's a $1 billion security barrier that the army built on the Gaza border just two years ago. And the former minister of defense was bragging about how strong it was. Uh, there's the Iron Dome missile defense system. And there's also pervasive Israeli surveillance. Ask any Gazan and they'll tell you that there are often drones buzzing above their heads. Israel's also notorious for its cyber snooping. So for this to go on really under their noses is astonishing. Okay. And so um, you said it was almost like a, a, a 2K versus a 5K here, right? I, I mean, explain like just like simple stuff like bulldozers were used, right? Right. So it's, it's, I would use the 2G versus 5G. Um, in the Western world, we're used to 5G cellular technology. Um, in Gaza, they use 2G. Only recently, the Israelis expanded spectrum for the West Bank to have 3G internet. So that's a really small, that allows for a very low transfer of information over cellular networks. But that's not what was necessary for this attack to be successful. Hamas militants used bulldozers, as you said, to plow through the border fence. They had armed people on paragliders going over the wall. People also arrived by sea. So this was kind of setting aside the Israeli tech and going for much more old-fashioned, as one um, as one security expert told me, old-fashioned tactics. Wow. You said, too, this will send shockwaves through the defense establishment. How so? Well, I think in Washington and in Europe, Israel is seen as an expert on tech security, a key supplier of security and defense technology across the West. I go sometimes to military tech shows here in Washington, and it's almost inevitable that you'll have Israeli purveyors of counter-drone technology or other security tech. Um, it's a huge part of the tech um, economy in Tel Aviv. Um, so I think for it to fail in such a spectacular way will for sure raise a lot of questions. Even this weekend, we heard from the former director of the CIA, John Brennan. He was saying on MSNBC that the attack raises questions about whether or not Israeli sources, both human and technical, had been compromised by Hamas. Yeah. Wow. We're speaking with Daniela Cheslow, deputy tech editor at Politico. Her story is called Israel and the West Reckon with a High Tech Failure. What are the next challenges for Israel here? I think when you look at the region, on the Israeli side, the tech industry has put its attention to the response to the attack. Um, companies like Wix and Monday have said they've been transporting reservist soldiers. I spoke to a UX developer who put together a database of people who were missing, and now he's trying to help with the grim task of identifying victims. I think you should also be looking at the Gaza Strip, where so far the Israeli attack in retaliation for the Hamas onslaught has cost hundreds and hundreds of lives. The Israeli airstrikes um, on Monday, Israel destroyed the building that houses the Palestinian telecommunications company in Gaza. Israel's defense minister has ordered what he called a complete siege on the enclave, saying Israel would be cutting off electricity, food, water, and fuel. Of course, that's going to have a huge impact on the Internet and technology in Gaza, but also the human toll is very high, and it's only going to go higher. Boy, How about the use of social media by each side, Daniela? That is coming out as a critical part of this conflict. Um, you have the Israeli army offering live military briefings on X, that's the platform formerly known as Twitter. Hamas has also been releasing footage from its attack. 
some of it pretty grisly, um, showing the results of their targeting of Israeli civilian and military infrastructure. Um, we've also heard from Hamas uh, a promise to execute uh, their civilian hostages that they took from Israel um, in exchange for any uh, targeting of civilians in buildings in Gaza. And we're hearing now that Israeli parents are worrying about their children possibly seeing hostage videos on their social media apps. Thanks, Daniela. Daniela Cheslo, Deputy Tech Editor at Politico. Bring smiles to all when shopping online with Dell Technologies Gift Guide. Whether it's for the artist, the entrepreneur, the student, or the streamer, you'll find the perfect gift. Dell.com slash gift guide makes gifting easy with a carefully curated selection. Shop now to explore our innovative PCs like the XPS 13 laptop, powered by the latest Intel Core processors plus accessories. Visit Dell.com slash gift guide today. That's Dell.com slash gift guide. Thanks for being with us. House Republicans are trying to unify behind a single leader to become the new speaker ahead of a vote that could come later today. Republicans last evening pressed the two candidates vying to serve as House Speaker on their visions and strategies for the gavel. They're trying to avoid a replay of January's standoff when it took 15 rounds to elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, only for him to be ousted last week after just nine months on the job. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana and Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio gave their pitches and took questions at a closed-door candidate forum. Mr. Scalise on Fox News. I've got a long history of bringing people together, uniting Republicans, focusing on the issues that we've got to do to address the things we came here to do to get our country back on track. Lawmakers said they discussed priorities such as reining in the national debt, spending cuts, and support for Ukraine and Israel. 20 minutes after the hour on This Morning, here's Jennifer Koshenka. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. As the conflict between Hamas and Israel enters a fifth day, the number of dead continues to rise. Israeli authorities say 1,200 have died during attacks by Hamas militants that began Saturday. The Palestinian Health Ministry says 950 people have died as a result of Israeli retaliatory strikes on Gaza, with some 5,000 injured. President Biden condemned the Hamas attack as an act of sheer evil. This attack has brought to the surface painful memories and the scars left by a millennia of anti-Semitism and genocide of the Jewish people. Biden says the U.S. is surging additional military assistance to Israel, including ammunition and interceptors for its anti-rocket system. Number two. Another strong earthquake shook part of western Afghanistan this morning after a quake over the weekend killed more than 2,000 people and flattened whole villages. The latest magnitude 6.3 earthquake was about 17 miles outside Herat. Number three. The Trump Organization's longtime finance chief, Alan Weisselberg, took the witness stand Tuesday and said under questioning, the real estate empire's financial statements inflated the value and size of some assets, including Donald Trump's penthouse in Trump Tower. Weisselberg was called as a witness in the civil case brought by the New York Attorney General's office, alleging Trump and his business engaged in a decade-long fraud that falsified asset values for financial gain. A fundraising campaign is underway for Olympic gymnastics champion Mary Lou Retton, who has pneumonia and is in intensive care in a Texas hospital. Retton's daughter shared Retton's condition in an Instagram post Tuesday, saying the 55-year-old Olympic star is fighting for her life and not able to breathe on her own. She wrote that Retton does not have medical insurance and needs money for medical expenses. The Big Apple is back. Times Square has found its groove heading into the crucial holiday season with new businesses opening and hotel sales picking up. The entertainment district recently recorded its 180th business opening since the pandemic, surpassing the 170 
79 closures that resulted from COVID, turning one of the U.S.'s most heavily trafficked districts into a ghost town. Companies ranging from Taco Bell and Raising Cane's to the more upscale Mermaid Oyster Bar have recently opened Times Square locations. The co-owner of the Mermaid Oyster Bar says sales are through the roof, especially Tuesday through Thursday when the restaurant draws both a theater crowd and office workers. Nice. I'll take half a dozen of those. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Did you know traditional bed sheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and other gross ailments. Fears, though, that you can put to bed with Miracle Made bed sheets. Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermoregulating to keep you at a perfect temperature all night. Miracle Made is self cleaning, self cooling, luxurious, eco friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. My wife and I love them. Now, my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleep cool all summer and warm all winter. The website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. Claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-made products are backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. trymiracle.com slash Gordon to save big. You can sleep cool, comfy, and clean. Miracle-made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. Sleep clean with Miracle. Glad you're with us. What will our shopping habits and trends be for the holiday season? Nerd Wallet is out with its annual holiday shopping report. Here's personal finance expert Kimberly Palmer with Nerd Wallet. Kimberly, give us findings. Well, Americans are very excited for the holidays and plan to spend money on average $831. But despite the fact there is a lot of stress and strain on consumers this year because inflation means prices are up across the board. And so basically, shoppers have to balance that stress with the fact that they really want to celebrate the holidays. All right, so put the $831 spent um, in perspective. Is that more than last year? Is it the same? Is it adjusted for inflation at all? Do we know? It is. So it's actually very similar to what people spent last year. And what we're finding is that because prices are higher, people are making adjustments to their budget. So they might be a little bit more selective in what they buy. They might spend more time shopping around and comparing prices. And in some cases, they're even having conversations with their family and friends in advance saying, hey, let's scale back a little bit this year. And so that's how, despite the fact that prices are higher, people are still spending roughly the same as they did last year. And here's a red flag I think we tend to see almost annually, but uh, some of last year's shoppers still have debt This figure is always shocking because people go into the holiday season thinking, okay, I'll turn to credit cards to help me cover some of these costs. But the fact is that debt sticks around. And among the people who did turn to credit cards last year to shop, about a third are still paying off those balances. So it's just a reminder to be a little bit careful when you're thinking about how to fund your holiday purchases because that debt can stick around. Yeah. Do do we have figures as to what we might be thinking this year in terms of using that credit card? Absolutely. So people are still planning, similar to last year, to to shop with their credit card. There are also some new, increasingly popular ways to pay for shopping. Of course, savings are always best. But when people get to the register and, you know, they just they don't have enough, but they really want to make the purchase. More people are also turning to uh, buy now, pay later plans where you actually break up your payments over several installments. Mm -hmm. Uh, You do have to be careful with that, too, because just like credit cards, it is a form of debt that you have to 
payback eventually. Uh, so people are turning to a variety of methods to fund their shopping. Of course, saving up in advance is always ideal, but not always possible. We're speaking with Kimberly Palmer, personal finance expert at NerdWallet. They've got new, uh, a new study on our holiday spending plans and what we plan to do with an average spending of about 831 bucks. Uh, what about some of our shopping habits here? It's very interesting because people are really shopping with their values. For a lot of people, shopping small, shopping locally, so going to local small businesses and supporting them is really important. People also want to go green, so they're trying to avoid uh, their carbon footprint when they're shopping. They're trying to think, can I get, can I re-gift items I already have? People are really getting creative about stretching their budget and also shopping in a way that reflects their values. Thanks, Kimberly. That is Kimberly Palmer personal finance expert at NerdWallet. One thing we all have in common is a need to feed. If you're like me, you love to eat and want to eat right without much pre-planning and shopping. Enter HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Kickstart a fresh fall with HelloFresh handling all the meal planning and shopping. They do the work, you take a bow. Plus, HelloFresh is more than just dinners. There's breakfast, quick lunches, fresh snacks, tasty, time-saving, and delivered to your front door. HelloFresh's convenience, variety, and quality keep me eating right all day and night. Right now, save from the start. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon and use code 50Gordon for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. HelloFresh's menu offers 40 recipes and over 100 add-ons. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon and use code 50Gordon for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Say goodbye to boring meal plans and HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon. We are America's First News. This morning with Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending time with us and welcome into Wednesday, October 11. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Some of our top stories and headlines. A second American aircraft carrier sent to the Middle East. Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise make their pitch to be the next House Speaker. New York Congressman George Santos accused of stealing the IDs of campaign donors and using their credit cards. Washington Post cutting 240 jobs to offset subscription and advertising issues. Rangers sweep the Orioles to advance to the ALCS. And how two babies who survived deadly heart defects side by side in the hospital became college roommates. That story in about 20 minutes. While House Republicans prepare to fight over who will be the next speaker, they're already battling over how to conduct the election complicating matters for an already divided conference. There's no consensus on whether to maintain the rule that it takes a simple majority of the Republican conference to advance a speaker candidate to the full House. In-depth analysis from Reese Gorman, congressional reporter at the Washington Examiner. Reese, what do we have? So basically, there's last week, there's proposed rule led by um, centrist rep Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania and Freedom Caucus member Chip Roy of Texas to make there have to be 217 votes within the conference to then for a speaker to be brought to the floor. Now, usually what happens is the House Republican Conference will get together, they'll vote, and all it takes is a simple majority, and then they take that candidate out onto the floor. And historically, people fall in line and they vote for that candidate and they get elected speaker. But what we saw in January was McCarthy got majority of support in conference, they took him to the floor and we went 15 rounds as speaker. Mm. And so the thought process behind this is to have that be avoided. So they want to be to have to not leave 
with a conference with a candidate until that candidate gets 217 votes, which is what's necessary to become speaker on the House floor to as a way to avoid any kind of speaker fight like what we saw in January. Boy, what are the odds that uh, this happens? It's I mean, it really so it'll take about 117 votes for this rule to pass. But it's just we don't really know. As I mentioned, my story, there's a lot of people that are for it. There's more the uh, Roy and Fitzpatrick got more than 90 signatures supporting this rule. But there's also a lot of people against it that don't think this is the way to do it because they'll be they could be locked in that room forever. Now, I've talked to sources and they say the kind of the logic behind this is. Not a lot of people want to be locked in a room with no phone, no nothing for hours and hours on end. So the thought process behind this is that at one point they'll be in here and they'll just be okay, like we're sick and tired of being in this room. Who has the most votes? Let's coalesce around this candidate and try to get this person to 17. So it could actually speed up the process as opposed to going onto the floor with the majority and then trying to whip people into, into voting for the candidate on the House floor. But there's other people there's like this is no one's ever going to get 217 right out of conference because you have x number of people that are never going to vote for jordan you have x number of people that are never going to vote for scalise and, and so they just want their candidate so they could be in this room forever and so it's it's very it's 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 very unknown right now we don't know if this will become rule taken also conference is a private ballot so you don't know who's voting which way okay so it's not like you can just start telling people hey, like, how about you go vote for this person? Because you don't know who's voting what way. You can have an idea, but it's private ballot, so you don't know. Wow. We're speaking with Reese Gorman, congressional reporter at the Washington Examiner. His story is called House Republicans Disagree Over How, Not Just Who, in Speaker Election. I presume that they're mindful of the optics of this, right? They're already being labeled as, you know, kind of the party of chaos, uh, don't know how to manage power, uh, disarray, things like that. Um, so that will play a role here in some way or, or not? I think it definitely will play a role. Um, but I think either way, if, it, if, if we don't have a speaker come end of Thursday, honestly, then that is still going to play into the role. And I think that either way, whether we adopt, whether this rule is adopted or this rule isn't adopted, it's going to be hard to get people to coalesce around a speaker, just because as we've seen in this conference, this whole Congress, people are willing to dig their feet in and just do what they, until they get what they want. And I think people are still willing to do that. But you do have people like Gates who have said that any, whoever, whether it's Jordan or Scalise, he'll vote for any of the candidates that come out of conference. But still, you're going to have, I mean, all it takes is four or five people to say, I'm not voting mm -hmm. for X, whoever that candidate is, and then they're not speaker. And then you just start getting into this fight again. So this rule change is meant to kind of hinder the public embarrassment of having a floor fight and okay. kind of keep everything behind closed doors. But at the same time, I think the outlook, too, would be how does that look to the American people that their elected representatives are behind closed doors arguing over who will be speaker for so long. I think that also has an optics factor to it as well. Thanks, Reese. Reese Gorman, congressional reporter at The Washington Examiner. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Wednesday. If you want to know just how cold and snowy the winter here in much of the U.S. will be, look no further than far away Siberia, the refrigerator for the Northern Hemisphere, as it's known. More from Doyle Rice, weather reporter at USA Today. Doyle, what's up here? Yeah, there's a meteorologist who has discovered this uh, connection between heavy snow in Siberia in October and then how it 
how it translates into heavy or extreme winter weather in, across the central and eastern United States. Uh, he's determined that if it's a very snowy October in Siberia, then that means that it, we're, we're, we're in for it here in the central and eastern U.S. with a cold winter. Why October in Siberia? Yeah, there's kind of a lag between when, uh, when the cold air that forms over that snow, um, there's a lag, but it takes that long for that coldness, that really intense cold to make its way across over to the United States. Uh, it's not something that's, it's, it's a very upper air pattern. It's not the lower level of weather that we're kind of used to here. Uh, it's much more of an upper level pattern with big climatological patterns up there. Wow. So what's it like, this uh, this snow in October? I mean, Siberia's a big region, right? So what's it like for this this snow? How much is there in a, in a big oh, snow October? Uh, Siberia is gigantic. It's bigger than the land area of the United States and Alaska put together. So we're talking a lot of snow. And uh, it, October is actually when Siberia sees its greatest expansion of snow cover. Uh, it's not in the winter because it starts snowing so early there that because it's such a cold region that any precipitation they get in October is usually in the form of snow. Wow. We're speaking with Doyle Rice, weather reporter at USA Today. His piece is called How Cold and Snowy Will the U.S. Winter Be? Why October Snow in Siberia Could Hold the Answer. Uh, so you reference mm-hmm. this researcher, Judah Cohen. Um, what is it? He's saying like 75% accuracy he's, he's confident with? Yeah, he's been doing this this, this uh, study since 1999. Uh, he he uh, releases a winter weather forecast in November each year after carefully analyzing what's been going on in Siberia. And it's amazing that it's been as accurate as, as it has been to me. Uh, the federal government, I'm not sure what their... Uh, their number is at the moment, but I have trouble believing it's as good as 75% accurate, which is, uh, I mean, he, he provides this forecast for private clients, but then he also uh, gives it out to the general public, so you can make your own uh, plans based on what his forecast is. Seems like there'd be a lot of money riding on what he says. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he's uh, I'm probably well uh, compensated for his uh his uh, uh, forecast for these clients that he pays uh, that pay for his services. So the so the last week of November, he'll he'll write yeah. a blog essentially with his findings about what the U.S. winter will be like. That's correct, and um, he, that comes out at the end of November. He does that every year, and it's, he, he said it's interesting that it really he's only found a connection between the kind of weather in the central and eastern U.S. But not the Western U.S. He has not uh, found, been able to determine a link between what happens in Siberia and the kind of severity that the West, 
Western U.S. will get. Well, I know we're in for a pretty serious El Nino winter here, and that can have an impact on Western United States. Nice Doyle. Doyle Rice, weather reporter at USA Today. Bring smiles to all when shopping online with Dell Technologies Gift Guide. Whether it's for the artist, the entrepreneur, the student, or the streamer, you'll find the perfect gift. Dell.com slash gift guide makes gifting easy with a carefully curated selection. Shop now to explore our innovative PCs like the XPS 13 laptop, powered by the latest Intel Core processors, plus accessories. Visit dell.com slash gift guide today. That's dell.com slash gift guide. Thanks for spending time with us. Welcome into Wednesday. Nine minutes now in front of the hour on this morning. Once again, here's Jennifer Koshenka. And now, the three big things you need to know. Number one. The Israeli military says hundreds of thousands of troops are near the Gaza border ready to execute the mission they have been given. Israel is expected to launch a ground offensive on the Gaza Strip soon to make sure Hamas won't have any military capabilities. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We had hundreds massacred. Families wiped out in their beds and their homes. Women brutally raped and murdered. Over 100 kidnapped, including children. The death toll in Israel has reached 1,200, while more than 950 people have been killed by Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. Meanwhile, the Israeli Defense Force says the first plane carrying U.S. armaments has arrived in southern Israel. Number two. Republicans last night pressed the two candidates vying to serve as House Speaker on their strategies for the top job, aiming to coalesce around a single leader ahead of a conference vote planned for this morning. House Majority Leaders Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, gave their pitches and took questions at a closed-door candidate forum. Florida's Matt Gates, the driving force behind ousting Kevin McCarthy, says he hasn't ruled out supporting Scalise or Jordan. In a world in which only two people are running for Speaker, it's going to be pretty clear who has the most support. And once it's clear who of the two has the most support, I think there's going to be, you know, a tremendous amount of pressure to coalesce around that candidate. But other can- lawmakers uh, cautioned they weren't sure either candidate could amass the 217 votes needed to be elected speaker. Number three. Republican Congressman George Santos of New York has been indicted on additional fraud charges, including for an alleged credit card scheme that ripped off one of his own political donors. Federal prosecutors allege in a new indictment that Santos used the credit card information of the campaign contributor and attempts to make tens of thousands of dollars in unauthorized donations to his campaign and to the campaigns of other political candidates. An iconic jacket, once worn by pop star Michael Jackson, is set to go up for auction in London next month. The black and white leather jacket, featured in a Pepsi commercial in 1984, is listed for $245,000. Also up for auction, George Michael's LaRocca jacket and a beehive hairpiece used by Amy Winehouse in 2007. Other memorabilia going under the hammer include items related to David Bowie, Elvis Presley, and the Beatles. That Michael Jackson jacket is only listed at two hundred forty-five thousand. It's going to go for millions. I agree. Think? Yeah, for I sure. I agree. Yep. Yeah, somebody's going to pony up big for that. Thank you, Jen. Glad you're with us. Two neonatal intensive care unit patients who were once given a forty percent chance of survival are now thriving years later. ABC News says Tate Lewis and Seth Rippentrop were born weeks apart in two thousand two. They were diagnosed in utero with hypoplastic heart syndrome a congenital condition where the left side of the heart does not form properly. They were treated at Children's Health in Dallas. The boys would need multiple surgeries and extensive treatment for their condition, which requires the reconstruction of the right side of the heart. 
It can be deadly if not treated in the first few days of life. Their mothers met in the hospital NICU with their sons in side-by-side rooms. Despite the odds, both boys survived and built a close bond. Tate's mom was terrified at the diagnosis. Seth's mom prayed that God would let him come home and just sleep one night. Today, the two close friends are both juniors in college and roommates at the University of Texas at Dallas. The pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon who treated Mr. Lewis says the most rewarding aspect of what we do is to see these patients reach adulthood and to be able to fulfill their dreams. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Koshenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Morning, America's First News.